electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Late rally, couldn't quite get there. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but winners stay late. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm John Fort. Morgan Brennan is off today. Coming up this hour, former Fred Governor, Fred, <laughs> Fed Governor Frederick Mishkin breaks down today's consumer price index data and the renewed spike in Treasury yields that sent stocks tumbling. Plus, Bidenomics in focus this hour. As CEOs from Target, IBM, and more gather at the White House for a meeting with the president. We will keep you posted as headlines emerge. But first, breaking news from Boston Fed President Susan Collins. Steve Leisman has it. Steve? Hey, uh, John, yeah, Boston Fed President Susan Collins, who just spoke yesterday, sounds maybe a little bit more concerned about inflation today. She says he's too soon to be confident inflation is heading back towards the Fed's 2% target. She makes specific remarks about today's CPI report, saying it is a reminder that restoring price stability will take time and could be uneven. Uh, the current phase of policy, she says, requires patience. That repeats her comments from yesterday. Uh, and again, repeating, says we may be at or ne- very near the peak of rates for this cycle. So still uh, not definitively saying that the Fed is on hold because she goes on to say uh, she would not take further tightening off of the table. Uh, may need to stay higher for longer. That's been out there. Uh, but she adds then the Fed's previous forecast, that is the one in September, suggested, I guess, raising questions about the two rate hikes the Fed has, the two rate cuts the Fed has kind of built into its average forecast for next year. She says recent economic reports have been strong, including both labor and economic activity broadly, and some further rebalancing of the economy will be needed. Uh, back getting to inflation again, she says the positive news today came from the decline in core goods. Housing inflation is moderating, but progress is uneven. And she's monitoring if the recent house price growth puts new pressure on rents. Core service inflation, she says, remains elevated. That's the thing that Fed Chair Jay Powell is looking at. And progress has been limited. Bring it down, she says, will require slowing uh, slowing labor market. On those rising yields, it does imply the tightening of financial conditions, uh, which she said yesterday as well. And higher yields, if sustained, she says, could reduce the need for further rate hikes. So, uh, John, hard to sort of give it a definitive. Is this hawkish? Is this dovish? It's a little bit more hawkish than yesterday. But broadly, she's still calling for patience and not necessarily signaling very clearly uh, a rate hike in November. It seems like tucking the corners of the sheets here. I mean, now that the market sort of expects to hold steady uh, at this next meeting, now that the market has digested that, maybe don't get too excited like it's going to stay here forever. I think that's right, John. I think that's a clever way to look at it. Think about, like, where is the market priced and how is the Fed official addressing the market here? Well, the market is not priced for a rate hike. That's for sure. I'm looking at these um, uh, percentages. We're down below 10 percent for the month of November. We're at 35 percent for December. Um, And it sounds like what she's saying is, I'm comfortable with that front end one, the first, the lower 10%, maybe not going to hike in November, Mm. but maybe you want to think more about whether or not there may be one more hike left here. Okay. Okay. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Thank you. 
Now to the broader market. Yields jumping following a Treasury auction mid-session, putting pressure on stocks, utilities, materials, and real estate. Those sectors getting hit the hardest while Walgreens topped the Dow on the back of earnings as big banks get ready to report tomorrow. Let's bring back in senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Mike, is this the story of a poorly received Treasury auction? U.S. government needs money. Investors are like, I don't know if I want to give you any. So maybe you got to sweeten the deal and yields perhaps go up. And that's bad for stocks. Is that the story? That's the story this afternoon, John, but also really a few days this week. There were, uh, it's about the third not-so-great uh, Treasury auction in terms of the reception, in terms of the yields that were demanded. And I think it shows that the market in general, as you were just talking about with Steve, you know, it's not in a position where it feels it can relax just yet both about the path fully of inflation getting under control and then, of course, of longer-term bond yields, which are moving not only on inflation concerns or Fed expectations, but that whole supply-demand picture and maybe also just some, I guess, self-reinforcing psychology, people starting to think yields can go even higher than they believed before, and it's built in there. So the sensitivity today of that move up in longer-term yields, uh, both the 30 and the 10-year, into that zone where we were starting to worry about it last week. That being said, things did not get out of control. We went down to like just about a 1% decline uh, on the S&P 500, maybe a little more than that, and then it it sort of in lockstep recovered through much of the afternoon. So it seems as if, you know, we've been dealing with these concerns for a while. We know that we have to be mindful of them, uh, but we maybe have some calluses built up against them as well. Now, Mike, at the same time, we do have a war in the Middle East and a legislative branch here at home that can't seem to release the parking brake. Has the market just ignored that uh, for the most part today? No, I don't think the market fully ignores really anything. What it does is it tries to figure out what precisely about those unsettling things they should be repricing. Like what exactly, how is that going to get to the stuff we care about bloodlessly in the market, which is longer term cash flows, what we're paying for them today, is the economy going to stay okay or is it not? It's not finding anything yet in either of those things. Maybe you could argue the Treasury auctions might go a little bit better if people had a firmer grasp of the long term fiscal plan, but I'm not so convinced at this point. So for now, until they erupt into areas that the market you know, really takes to heart, uh, it, it's much more about kind of background noise that keeps things a little uncomfortable. Mm. That was a very short flight to safety on the yields. Yeah, though. exactly. It, didn't, it was like a very brief spread. And by the way, that's the, that's a historic pattern, too. You don't, it doesn't usually last after a, a shocking event. Okay, great context. Thanks, Mike. Now let's bring in our market panel. Joining us now, Vital Knowledge founder Adam Crisofulli and Main Street Research CIO James Demert. Uh, guys, welcome. James, you think we are actually about to get a new bull market led by AI but lifting all sectors. That sounds great. How are we going to know if it's starting? Thanks, John. Good to see you. And, uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, we do believe it's a new bull market starting AI-led, um, but all other sectors uh, to follow as opposed to last rally. And we see a perfect setup, a setup that you really didn't see at the bottom of the corrections we've had you know, really for the last 18 months. Number one, you know, the Fed being done. And I can give you more information about that. Uh, CPI close enough. Uh, yes, uh, not there yet, but we think close enough that stocks are going to start to discount it being where it needs to be. You know, and then you've got some technical stuff, very oversold. Uh, market with uh, elevated VIX, which is what we saw back in, in March during the last correction, uh, and valuation of equities. So, uh, you know, basically looking forward with uh, managed inflation, very attractive at these levels. 
Adam, are you convinced? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say you're on the brink of a brand new bull cycle. Um, you know, I do think that in the very near term, the, this rally that kicked off last week can continue a bit further. I think Powell has a big speech next Thursday that's going to be very important. If he echoes the messaging that's been coming from some of his colleagues yesterday about how the, the higher yields are doing a lot of the work of the Fed, removing the need for one more rate hike, I think that will be received well. But I still think that there's an awful lot of monetary tightening that's still in the system. Each tick lower in the CPI is raising real yields in the economy. You still have aggressive balance sheet runoff taking place, and you still have the lagged effect of higher tightening that really hasn't even hit the full market yet. There was an interesting Boston Fed report out today talking about how excess savings of companies, not consumers, but excess savings of companies have dwindled over the last couple of years. And now you're going to start to see companies really feel the effects of the recent hike in yield. So I'm a bull in the near term, but then I think that you're going to run into some headwinds again uh, that will require some time to work off. Okay, James, some names you like, Booking Holdings, Hitachi, Alphabet. I'm particularly curious about Booking Holdings, given the uh, mixed news that we've been hearing on airlines lately. Booking has had a nice run over the past year, isn't too far off the highs. Why do you still like it? Yeah, it's about 10% off the highs, John. And, and, and we like it here because, again, you know, look at the company, 30% uh, earnings growth, uh, very fat margins. Uh, yes, there's increase in airline costs, of course, relative to oil and energy. We do think those are short-term phenomena. I think investors get a little bit, uh, as, as you see in a lot of parts of the market this week, uh, get a little bit too sensitive about short-term moves in oil or how that affects airlines. Uh, we think that is not going to be the big story uh, for booking as we go into the further into the fourth quarter and into certainly uh, 2024. Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess if you look at it up 50% so far year to date, the 10% doesn't look that big on the chart. But Adam, when I, I look to sort of some sectors that were down today, uh, within health, medical devices still struggling. What are you seeing there as far as what's driving it? And do you have any opinion on whether they're going to get a bounce? You've seen this, uh, you know, this GLP-1 wrecking ball, um, you know, really work through not only healthcare but consumer staples as well, beverage and food-linked consumer staples and medical device stocks. Have just been and that's the weight loss drugs, the, which we yeah. affectionately call GLP-1s, yeah. Yes, exactly. So the, the anti-obesity drugs um, is arguably a bigger investment theme this year than, than artificial intelligence as far as the effect it's having on the market. Um, you had Davida came or was crushed yesterday on this Novo Nordisk trial result on kidney failure. They came out this morning and said that they don't see any effect to their business, and the stock came for sale again. Pepsi results earlier in the week were decent. They raised guidance. They provided decent guidance for next year. The whole space continues to come for sale. So it's kind of a hard concern for these companies to rebut because it's, it's going to take place over the next several years. It's not anything near term. Um, and markets are just very concerned that this is a huge secular theme that's going to you know, change huge portions of the economy, and, and it's, it's a huge headwind for a lot of these names. Um, a lot of these companies report earnings next week, so we'll get to hear an update. Avid, J&J, um, you get Nestle Sales and a few other companies in this space. So it'll be interesting to hear what they say. But again, you've had a couple of firms out this week already pushed back, and it hasn't really had any effect on how these names are trading. Yeah. Artificial intelligence and artificial diets, both Big. Adam Christofuli, uh, James Demert, thanks to you both. Now let's get back to Mike Santoli with a look at how the average stock has performed since the S&P's market bottom 
last year. Mike? Yeah, John, not well on a relative basis. The equal-weighted S&P is up, let's say, 10-ish percent from a year ago today when the S&P bottom, S&P itself up more than 20 percent. So that's a pretty wide gap. This chart comparing those two things goes back four years just to see how this relationship has evolved. So obviously goes to before the onset of COVID. And during 2020, during the pandemic, we know it was a very uneven market, a lot of outperformance by those stay-at-home digital leaders. And you saw that gap really open up. S&P 500 way outperforming the equal weight. And what happened after that? Well, you had some catch-up. The economy reopened. Uh, the rally became more inclusive of uh, economically sensitive stocks and financials and all the rest of it. And then they widened out again. And that was near the high in the overall market in the NASDAQ in late 2021. And that gap closed in a different way, which is the mega caps fell down to meet the equal weight, which outperformed last year during the entire bear market. I guess the point is there's no single way that this resolves itself uh, necessarily. You can certainly not like the fact that we have an unusually wide divergence opening up right here, but you can't in itself say, therefore, the market's either doomed or the rest of the market's going to catch up. Do want to look at one other relationship uh, today, Walmart versus Target. This is a long-term comparison you can make where they've kind of moved in sync. It's a 10-year it's chart. And so you see they were kind of at the same spot here right at the beginning of the pandemic. What happened? Target just vaulted ahead. It was considered to be this omni-channel winner, new management, really putting Target in the right spot for a lot of those discretionary purchases with all the stimulus. And then, of course, just completely unwound that all those gains, all the concerns with the boycott, as well as things like shrink. And Walmart gets a safety premium because of all the grocery, and it's a, a good operator. But now, Walmart right here is at about 23 times earnings. Target today, 12, 13 times forward earnings. B of A upgrading the stock today. It did get a little bit of traction. Target stock up a little bit, but they think there's perhaps more catch-up to be done here, John. Certainly a story of bigger does better in both yeah. of those charts. Back to the first one, what to make of the fact that in the early part, uh, mega caps were outperforming because they were running higher and then in the latter part, maybe they're outperforming because the others are falling faster. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It, it seems as if right now they've been cast not as, you know, these great, exciting growth stories that people want to own a piece of as much as they're considered defensive, great balance sheets. They can handle higher interest rates because they don't have a lot of debt. Uh, and there's sort of places to hide as opposed to, yeah, as I said before, it was all about the digital transformation and people thinking that the, uh, the sort of new world was with us uh, all at once. So I think that's the distinction this time. All right. That helps us with our portfolio analysis. Mike Santoli, thank you. Now, as we mentioned, a number of CEOs are meeting this hour at the White House with President Biden to talk about the state of the economy. Our Eamon Javers has more on what to expect. Eamon? Hey, John, we're out here on 17th Street just outside the White House. We are keeping our eyes out uh, for any CEOs who are arriving for this meeting. Uh, this is a meeting for the Biden administration to talk about their infrastructure spending efforts and talk to the CEOs who are at the front lines of that effort to make sure that everything is going well. Obviously, also an opportunity for the Biden administration uh, to hit ahead of a campaign year what they see as the success of what they're calling Bidenomics here at the White House. Take a look here at the CEOs who are going to be in this meeting because they they represent a whole different range of industries, starting with Brendan Bechtel of the Bechtel Group. You've got Calvin Butler of Exelon, uh, Kenneth Chenault, now of General Catalyst, uh, Brian Cornell of Target, uh, Tasunda Brown Duckett of TIAA, Arvind Krishna of IBM, and Judy Marks of 
Otis, uh, all expected to be at this meeting today uh, with President Biden here. And, and of course, it's an opportunity for the Biden White House to talk about the strengths of the economy as they see it, again, ahead of the election year, John. But it's also an opportunity for these CEOs to talk about any snags or problems that they're seeing in the supply chain of the money getting out to the frontline companies that are actually doing some of this infrastructure work uh, in terms of federal agencies spending processes, any problems they see, they'll be able to raise those with the White House staff and, of course, the relevant federal agencies, John. So we'll keep an eye out for CEOs. If we see any, uh, we'll be sure to talk to them here and tell you what they had to say. All Back right. Looking forward to that. Eamon Javers, great setup. Thank you. And the latest inflation print coming in a bit hotter than expected in places, just as Fed officials were pivoting to a more dovish tone. We'll talk about that dynamic next with former Fed Governor Frederick Mishkin. Overtime's back in two. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Exco, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. This morning's September CPI report could be putting the Fed's next decision in limbo. The overall print coming in hotter than expected as shelter prices rose, though the core number matched estimates. And moments ago, Boston Fed President Susan Collins said today's CPI report is a reminder that restoring price stability will take time. Joining us now is former Fed Governor Frederick Mishkin. Frederick, welcome. What do you make of this CPI report, the market seems to still expect we're not getting a hike immediately. Well, I, I think that's probably right, uh, that, uh, you know, we have some conflicting things coming in. Uh, the Fed still has not been successful in terms of achieving their objective, and that's really a big concern for them. However, uh, the markets have finally recognized that the Fed is actually serious about controlling inflation, and they're going to keep rates high for a long time. I think that's a good thing. And the result is that uh, long-term bond rates have gone up, and that's a tightening in financial conditions. So uh, given this sort of uh, data that's coming in, which, you know, inflation numbers sometimes look good, but, you know, they're still not, not quite on the path that the Fed needs to achieve. Uh, the economy's a little bit strong. But on the other hand, uh, there is a tightening of financial conditions, and that means that things are pretty up in the air for the Fed. Uh, I think the, the important aspect of this is, that the Fed is committed to keeping rates high for a long time. And I think that's what's really important. And the markets have finally figured out that the Fed is serious about that. So, uh, and that can get the pressure off the Fed. Hmm. So, so how should we factor in these weak Treasury auctions, uh, given the Fed is saying that they're watching the impact of higher yields and it might prevent them from uh, hiking further? Well, I think the, the issue here is that... Uh, uh, when the markets finally recognize that the Fed is going to do it for keep rates high for a long time, 
uh, that's reflected in long-term interest rates. Uh, and that's what we have, we're seeing now. There are also some other issues uh, in terms of, of, of actually uh, uh, this sort of turmoil in our government doesn't really help, government shutdowns, uh, uh, the, the uh, inability to get our fiscal situation in order. Uh, this also impacts long-term bond yields, and that, again, can cause a tightening of, of financial conditions. So I think that we're in a situation where the Fed can, can wait to see how the data evolves. Uh, I think that's an absolutely appropriate thing for them to do right now. And, uh, and we'll have to see what happens, uh, that uh, the, the Fed's on the right track. They, they uh, successfully have gotten the markets to understand that they're serious. And I think that's a very good thing. So I'll ask you this. So war in the Middle East now, uh, a legislative branch that's not functioning what are the signs, if there are going to be signs, that the, the, the economy, the market is, is being affected by that? Well, you know, look, uh, uh, there are crazy things going on uh, all over the world and, uh, and even crazier things going on in terms of our politics in the U.S. And this doesn't help. It creates a lot of uncertainty. I think that's actually an issue that uh, it could affect the economy at some point, And the Fed is well aware of that. Uh, uncertainty and also and policies which are not that effective uh, do make people concerned. And in fact, uh, they may cut back on spending and so forth. So the Fed has to wait and see on this. And uh, we'll have to see how things actually play out in this regard. Uh, clearly, the world is not in a great state right now. And that's that's not a good thing for the economy. So energy prices, uh, discretionary spending, are those the areas where you would look? Yeah, I think that, that uh, 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 again, uh, the, both the war in Ukraine and also the recent events in the Middle East are not very good for energy prices, and uh, and that can impact the, the households. And also, there's an issue about whether, in fact, uh, the good times are going to keep on rolling, given all of, of these crazy things that are happening. So that's clearly something that uh, that uh, the Fed has to worry about. But on the other hand, the economy has been much stronger than the Fed expected. So, uh, you know, we're living in interesting times, as the as the curse uh, says. Uh, and uh, uh, and then you have to watch the data very carefully and keep track of it. You never get it perfect. Uh, it's a, a very tough for the Fed to, to engineer a soft landing. I'm still doubtful that they'll be completely successful at it. But on the other hand, I don't see really bad times uh, uh, or a serious recession uh, developing, even if a recession does occur. Interesting times indeed. Uh, be well. Ooh. Thank you, uh, Frederick Mishkin, former Fed governor. Now, despite today's broad pullback, tech is having a strong month so far. And longtime analyst Mark Mahaney just published a note with his new top pick in the space heading into earnings. He will reveal his best idea next. And here's a look at some of the names closing at 52-week lows today. Campbell, Pepsi, PayPal, Dollar General, and Clorox all on that unfortunate list. We'll be right back. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Earnings season is in full swing with big banks' earnings coming in the morning. Tech results are going to ramp up next week, starting with Netflix on Wednesday. Let's bring in Mark Mahaney right now from Evercore ISI. He just published a note with a new 
top large cap pick. Mark, tell me about it. So Amazon is up about 58% year to date. Uber is up 86%. Is that why you think Amazon has more room to run from here? Well, okay, if I want to step back, you know, we're, we're, we're now called, we started the year being tactically constructive. We're now totally tactically constructive. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's what we're saying, John. So, look, we've had a recent pullback in the sector for a variety of reasons, mostly related to macro and markets rates, particularly. I think that's created a kind of a little bit of a fatter pitch for some of these names. Uh, we got fundamentals that are improving in the back half of the year. A good number of these names are going to have accelerating revenue growth and then margin expansion with multiples reduced and those two factors there, generally stocks work well. I like Amazon here because it pulled in 15% just in the last month and a half off a variety of concerns that I think are overstated. Um, and one of those concerns is that AWS is just not recovering its growth. Uh, the channel checks we do suggest that that growth is recovering. Whether, it, it, whether they beat the bar this quarter or not, it's hard to know. But in the next one, two, three quarters, you're going to see a reacceleration in part because of these generative AI workloads. Other issues that Amazon, the stock, is facing concerns over Timu and, and uh, Xi'an and uh, uh, Chinese fast fashion, fast retail retailers. Mm. And I think that mistake, I think that's there's a mistake going on here. I think if you look at the cross-visitation analysis, I think there's much less overlap between Amazon and those companies than there is with a series of other retailers. And then uh, I think margins are going to continue. We think margins are going to continue to recover in the retail business. So we like the fundamental setup and the valuation setup on Amazon, number one pick. Okay, so let's center this on Amazon since they got almost all the businesses that we want to talk about. Uh, Is Amazon going to move more on AI or on the retail business in Q4? And to the degree that AI is a, a mover for the stock. How much headline risk is there if people get excited about Microsoft or, well, particularly Microsoft? I'm going to change your question just a little bit. I think okay. it's going to move on AWS and then on retail. And then AI is just kind of part of the thesis in this name because AI is going to, the workloads associated with generative AI, oh, that's what's going to start powering this reacceleration or one of the factors that leads to this reacceleration in AWS growth. But yeah, the AWS has been the number one reason why the stock is over the last kind of year and a half has um, has derated so much, why the multiple is so much off. But Mark, it's- is, is, that, is that because of the slowdown in growth in AWS or is it because of the perception that the, uh, the second and third place players because of AI are catching up from a momentum and profit perspective? I think it's both. Um, I think you've had this optimization uh, cycle amongst a lot of people who companies that buy enterprises that buy cloud services for economic reasons that slowed uh, down AWS. And then, yeah, the margin, the company that's really impressive here is Microsoft Azure. And uh, you know, I think they caught the beat or they took a step ahead. They got a little bit ahead of the curve versus AWS. I think AWS is still well positioned. I think this anthropic uh, investment that they did recently was a super savvy, smart move. Uh, I think AWS can fully participate in a reacceleration. So I guess that's the that's really the pitch. And you give them enough time, I think they can kind of steal back and get back to that leading AI position that that Microsoft currently has. Now, Mark, one name that you have liked that has also had a decent pullback over the last few months, but that I don't see on your list of top picks is Netflix reports next week. How do you feel about it? I'm a little more nervous on Netflix right here. This strike that is not ending uh, has two impacts on Netflix. First is that it increases the chance of a content hole 
So, um, you know, those shows they wanted to pull out, you know, uh, push out in Q4 and in Q1, they probably can't. It gets delayed. The second thing is, I think it delays the timing in which Netflix can pull its next price increase, what they call widen the price range. It's a nice way of, it's a nice euphemism for increasing prices. <laughs> but that, that pushes that off probably until the back half of next year. So in the meantime, you have a little bit of an air pocket on Netflix. I think that's why the stock is pulled back, probably for good reasons. I'd probably want to wait until after the print before getting before becoming a real buyer in uh, Netflix. All right. We'll get that print right here on Overtime next week. Mark Mahaney, thank you. Thanks, John. Time now for a CNBC News update with Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Hey, John. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there is no direct evidence that Iran was involved in Hamas's attack on Israel last week, at least not yet. But he noted in an interview with NBC's Lester Holt today that Iran has long supported Hamas and the terrorist network wouldn't be what it is without that support. You can see more of Lester's interview with Secretary Blinken tonight on NBC Nightly News. And more top American officials are heading to Israel. Eisenhower, uh, defense, a senior defense official rather, said Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is planning to travel to Israel tomorrow. He's expected to meet with the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israelis, Israel's Prime Minister of Defense, and the Israeli War Cabinet to discuss additional resources and support for Israel. And the White House said today it will release a supplemental funding request to Congress next week. Sources tell NBC News the Biden administration is planning to link money together for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan and the U.S. southern border. Although several Republicans have said they would not support tying Israel aid to Ukraine. John. All right, Bertha, thank you. After the break, a lack of confidence. CEOs are still feeling bearish about the economy, even as recession fears wane. And there's one factor that could be weighing on that sentiment we will explain next. And don't forget, you can catch us on the go by following the Closing Bell Overtime podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Check out shares of Birkenstock under pressure again today following its IPO yesterday. Investors doing some soul searching after seeing the stock plunge more than 18% since its debut. And that leads in perfectly to my latest installment of the On the Other Hand newsletter. There's the QR code. You can also type in the link, cnbc.com slash O-T-O-H. See, it's short, cnbc.com, O-T-O-H. This week's debate is which shoe stock is the better bet right now, Birkenstock or Nike? Nike has had a pretty rough year so far. You can sign up using, again, that QR code on the screen or go to cnbc.com slash O-T-O-H. Now, CEOs continue to stay cautious on the economy. The conference board CEO confidence index fell to 46 in the fourth quarter. That's down from 48 last quarter. 72% of CEOs preparing for a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. Mike Santoli is back with his take. Mike? Yeah, so these, these levels of CEO confidence, John, uh, really are associated uh, with pretty rough economic times. If you look at how this compares uh, in these shaded areas, that's uh, that's recessions, right? So basically, if you trace it over here, that's usually when things seem pretty bad. What's interesting about the current survey is uh, they're not really saying that the conditions are worrisome at the moment. It's all about the forward-looking expectations. Now, you mentioned that the pretty solid majority of uh, CEOs are on some level preparing for a recession, but 28 percent 
are now saying they don't anticipate a recession in the next 20, uh, 12 to 18 months. Just three quarters ago, that was only 6%. So in other words, you went from 90-plus percent expecting a recession to maybe a little bit less than 80%. That's not great, but it does show you that uh, things have improved in terms of their assessment of things. But obviously inflation and, and the real uh, kind of uncertainty surrounding Fed policy and this uh, oddities of this cycle seem to be weighing on folks. You've been in recession vigil for like a year and a half now, let's remember. Now, take a look at uh, M&A volume, because this is generally a pretty direct outgrowth in general of CEO confidence in addition to capital markets conditions and things like that. Really weak uh, because, you know, 2021, you know, it was pretty healthy, but it was not really record levels of global M&A. And then we see the step down even last year while stocks were declining pretty precipitously. Uh, you know, you still had more deals than we do right now. You've gotten a little bit of a perk up in uh, activity with that ExxonMobil Pioneer deal this week in the fourth quarter, not reflected here. But you see that basically, even though there theoretically should be some bargains out there in terms of competitor stocks and things like that, not a lot uh, of activity. So, Mike, traditionally, which matters more, that low mark in CEO confidence or the momentum upward in CEOs who don't expect a recession? I, I would think it's, it's the CEO confidence that continues to weigh, especially on their decisions about where to spend their money, whether to, to merge or acquire things, whether to invest heavily in capital uh, spending, things like that. I do think that that usually uh, modulates much more with how they're feeling about the outlook. But... That outlook does tend to adjust if we get some kind of reassurance that a soft economic landing is with us for a while. You'll probably see uh, those moods brighten a bit. And maybe that's where this unfortunate war and Congress also come in. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how that news continues to develop. Mike, thank you. Meanwhile, Dollar General getting a big spike after hours. Pippa Stevens has the detail. Pippa, what's going on? Hey, John. Well, so Dollar General said that current board member and former CEO Todd Vassos has been reappointed as CEO. He's taking over from Jeff Owen, who has left the company and resigned from the board effective today. Todd Vassos was formerly CEO at Dollar General from June 2015 through November 2022. The company said in a statement that the board determined a change in leadership was necessary to, quote, restore stability and confidence in the company moving forward. Dollar General did also narrow its earnings outlook, though shares up 8%. John? Yeah, after hours, investors generally happy with that. Pippa, thanks. HashiCorp making changes to its core product in order to perhaps head off a community revolt. The company's CEO discusses what's at stake when Overtime returns. Welcome back to Overtime. HashiCorp falling today down about 4.5%. The company, meanwhile, unveiling new AI features in its core cloud platform to make it easier for developers to manage their infrastructure, among other things. Joining us now is the CEO, Dave McJanet. Dave, good to see you. Uh, since the last time we had you live on Overtime, there's been this bit of a community revolt over Terraform. Um, they've kind of forked it and, and started this new open source uh, community around it that's seen as a threat to HashiCorp. How do these new features that you've unveiled in AI fit into this story? Hey, John, good to see you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually at our annual conference here in San Francisco. Uh, as, I, as, I, uh, as I look around, I'm kind of shocked at the scale of the user community and the kind of the, the important companies that use our products each and every day. So it's a super fun reminder for us. But what we're doing is just continuing to deliver for them. You know, we have a, a large group of people 
you know, united around the idea of helping people automate their infrastructure lifecycle and their security lifecycle. And a lot of things we did we did this week was just to underscore our, our, our continued progress there. As you mentioned, a bunch of AI capabilities in, in Terraform, uh, which is actually kind of a fun topic, right? This is this, you're starting to see companies like us start to actually leverage AI inside of our products rather than just use them in sort of as a marketing vehicle, which some others have done. And we're super excited about that. Yeah, happy to talk about those those, those two things happily. Yeah. So uh, correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but back in August, you announced uh, over at HashiCorp that you're changing the terms of the license for the the version of, of Terraform that you guys offer. Some uh, of the community was upset about that. Is your message that these features, the kind of support and stability that HashiCorp is going gonna, is gonna to offer is going to make the price worth it? Yeah, so to be clear, we just, we just made a, a very minor change in the licensing and the open source licensing model for all of our products, actually, which uh, are really very, very simple. And for 99.9% .9 of the world, it makes no difference whatsoever. What you're seeing really from us is just you know, what we do each and every day. This is nothing, not about anything in particular, nothing specific. You know, I think we have a cadence of product releases that we bring out and we, we made a bunch of announcements this week around our, our core product portfolio. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't misread the license changes anything other than just something that uh, pretty much everybody before us has done. You know, the license change we made was very similar to what MongoDB did and what uh, Elastic did, what Confluent did. You know, this is a very, very well understood model and evolution of how companies, uh, you know, in the open source world work. And, uh, you know, where our focus really is, is we got to keep delivering for our customers. So uh, we talked about the enterprise spending environment and how uh, you guys aren't on a consumption model. So you're seeing um, the, the deal cycles evolve slowly in uh, this, this shaky economy. That continue to be the case? Yeah, and I think we talked about this before. It's actually kind of a fascinating aspect of uh, enterprise software buying patterns in that, you know, you have some companies that sell consumption-based models. That's like the cloud providers. You know, you, you know, the minute you turn something on, you get billed for it. And the minute you turn it off, the billing stops. And what you've seen is, is uh, as there's been an optimization cycle in the industry, you've sort of seen the reaction in, in, in the hyperscalers' revenues to reflect that almost immediately. As the economy's gotten more constrained, people are, are, are taking behaviors to minimize their spend. For the general software market, we, we sell annual entitlements to our products. And so really it's that cycle, it's just on a different cycle, right? You know, when people, uh, you know, expand or contract their, their, their licenses, it takes a few quarters for those renewal cycles to come up and that to get reflected. And I think that's what we talked about last time. It's actually a fascinating nuance of just the licensing implications and how that translates to revenue. I would say, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the spending environment this year is certainly different than from what it was last year. I think like, like everybody else in the industry, you know, we, we serve the, the needs of the four or 5,000 largest organizations on the planet. And so, you know, as their spending patterns change, you know, we're all, we're all, all impacted. But I w what I will say is the secular trends aren't changing. You know, we had some of the biggest companies in the world, companies like Home Depot and BlackRock and, you know, gaming companies like Unity here at our conference talking about the progression of their cloud approaches and how we play a fundamental role. So, you know, while their temporary cycles do come and go, kind of the long-term secular trends could sort of continue unabated, and that's, that's super exciting for us to watch. Ah, you mentioned Unity. New CEO over there who knows something about managing uh, open source communities. So. Correct. <laughs> uh, David Janet, CEO of HashiCorp, thanks for being with us here on Overtime. Thanks for having me, John. The government's key witness in the fraud trial of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, who also happens to be his ex-girlfriend, getting grilled by defense lawyers today. We've got the highlights when Overtime returns. 
The former CEO of Sam Bankman-Fried's hedge fund, who also happens to be his ex-girlfriend, Carolyn Ellison, taking the stand in the FTX founder's fraud trial for the third straight day, this time under intense cross-examination by his lawyers. Kate Rooney is outside the courthouse in Manhattan with the highlights. Kate? Hey, John. So Caroline Ellison has wrapped up an explosive few days on that witness stand. She left the courthouse just over an hour ago. Far fewer bombshells today. When the defense cross-examined Ellison, there were no big aha moments. The attorney's strategy appeared to be more about trying to introduce doubt and challenge her credibility today. The jury paid close attention during that testimony, especially during the government's direct questioning. They were looking at Ellison and the attorneys, taking notes. Attorneys for Bankman-Fried tried to paint her as a really a bad manager. One example was a failure to hedge and protect from some crypto market losses. But the cross-examination, it was scattered, changing dates and topics without a clear knockout punch today. In her more fiery testimony yesterday, Ellison said that after the two crypto companies filed for bankruptcy, she felt a, quote, sense of relief that I didn't have to lie anymore and that she said she'd been living in a constant state of dread. There was some awkward tension in the room. In that courtroom between these two, Ellison said she hadn't seen or spoken to Bankman-Fried since those companies collapsed last November. They avoided eye contact completely. We had an FTX software engineer come on the stand and then a lender, BlockFi, is up next. We're going to hear more from them tomorrow, John. All right. Kate Rooney, thank you. Now, big bank earnings take center stage on Wall Street tomorrow. A top analyst is going to tell us what he's expecting when overtime returns. Big bank earnings kick off tomorrow. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup and PNC all reporting before the bell. Let's bring in RBC's head of U.S. bank equity strategy, Gerard Cassidy. Gerard, uh, is this rise in yields that we've been seeing more good for banks on the loan side or bad for banks because of what they got to pay out uh, in interest? John, th uh, thank you for having me on the program. And looking at it from the way you just asked that question, the long end of the curve is really not that impactful for the deposits. The deposits tend to be more the front end of the curve to the middle of the curve. And then at the long end of the curve, you do see it in the longer term residential mortgage business, of course, and sometimes the commercial real estate business. But the biggest impact that the rise in rates has had is on the unrealized uh, bond losses in everybody's fixed income portfolio. So for the stocks that are first up in this round of earnings season, you got buys on J.P. Morgan, Citigroup and PNC, but a hold on Wells Fargo. Let's start with the odd one out. Wells Fargo, why the hold? Good question. We still believe that the cease and desist order that they've been operating under, which has led to the balance sheet being frozen, is really putting a cap on this bank. Once that cease and desist order is lifted, however, this stock should do very well. It's been a stock that's traded, you know, between the high 30s and uh, mid to high 40s. They've done a very good job in bringing down expenses and driving up those consumer deposits. But because of that limit, they can't grow the balance sheet. Um, that's the reason that we've got to hold on that stock. Okay, Gerard. Now, between the other three, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and P&C, is any one of them more of a bellwether? I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan, some might argue that it's in a class of its own. Will the results of any one of these give investors more of an indication of what to expect or look uh, for for the rest of the financials this season? 
John, a really good question, because you're right. It, it is J.P. Morgan. They are the bellwether. But more importantly, when you look at their diversified business model, they're in all the different banking businesses. So if you want to do read-throughs tomorrow to wealth management, you can certainly do that with J.P. Morgan's results. Or the payments business, you can do that also with J.P. Morgan. Of course, consumer lending, consumer deposits. And then, of course, the big one of all is investment banking as well as corporate lending. So that's why it's so important to see their results tomorrow, because it will tell us what's likely to happen in all those different different areas throughout the bank's uh, reporting season, which, again, kicks off, as you said, tomorrow. Uh, the KRE, the regional banking ETF, is still in detention, right? It's, it's around... 41 bucks. Uh, is that going to change after we get some of these reports this season or no? I, I think what we need to see, John, that's a great, I like that term detention, by the way. Um, I would say that uh, what we really need to see is the terminal rate for Fed funds. That's going to be the catalyst, John. And I think what you're going to see is when the market is convinced that Fed is finished raising short-term interest rates, in the last four tightening cycles, that has been the bell ringing event. Now, maybe we're at it right now. We don't know. Maybe it's going to be in December. But if this inflation number can get under control and the market figures out that the Fed has finished raising short-term interest rates, that's going to be the real catalyst in our opinion. All right. Now, we've got war in the Middle East. We've got a new level of D.C. dysfunction. How much do, does either of those matter to the banks? They don't have a material impact on their businesses, particularly the regional banks, as you can imagine. Obviously, they're not doing business globally. J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and some of our global banks certainly have more are more impacted. Of course, Citigroup was impacted the most with the war over with Ukraine and Russia and having to divest certain assets out of Russia. So, But overall, it, it really doesn't impact the consumer spending in this country um, to a material extent. And that's the real key. As you know, the consumers are two-thirds of the U.S. economy. And as long as they remain employed and as long as they're spending money, and we're going to hear about that tomorrow from J.P. Morgan and Citi, um, that that's the real key driver, we think, to whether these banks have a good outlook over the next 12 months. All right. Gerard Cassidy, um, you know, those banks kicking off earnings season at such an important time where there's so many questions about the market. We appreciate you joining us here on Overtime. Thank you, John. Uh, we get those numbers again tomorrow morning. For now, that's going to do it for Overtime. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.